0: So I'd like to begin tonight by um, reading this from Ajahn Chah. If your mind becomes quiet and concentrated, it's an important tool to use. But if you're sitting just to get concentrated so you can feel happy and pleasant, then you're wasting your time. This is like taking a stone and covering up a smelly garbage pit. When you take the stone away, it's still full of smelly garbage. So you must use your concentration, not to temporarily bliss out, but to accurately examine the nature of mind and body. This is what actually frees you. But examining the smelly garbage pit is not very pleasant. And um, we were being encouraged in the guesthouse last night, or the other night, so just open and welcome all the visitors, even if they're very difficult visitors like shame and guilt and embarrassment and fear and greed and hatred and jealousy and grief and all these very difficult mind states. And so it's not very easy to take the one seat. Sometimes we just want to hide under the chair. And. Jung says, one doesn't become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is very disagreeable, and therefore not popular. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what some of us wonder about when we come here and see all these things. But it is really important to look at them what the Dalai Lama called destructive emotions because it's these destructive emotions that lead to all the weapons of destruction in the world. And the Dalai Lama encouraged us to use our practice to transform them into love and understanding, compassion, wisdom, generosity. To really go deeper to seeing the causes of these emotions, and how to work with them. So, Shantideva says, in this world, the unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell, which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. These difficult places in our mind. And in the Arya Rata, Ratanakuta Sutra, the Buddha says to Kasyapa, he said, Mind, O Kasyapa, is like space defiled by impurities. Mind is like a bad friend because it brings about all kinds of misery. It's like a bait for fishes with pleasant appearance but pain-causing. Mind, O Kasyapa, is like an enemy who causes much vexation. Mind is like a vampire that sucks one's vigor and ever seeks for access. It's like a thief that steals one's good dispositions. So how do we work with these unpleasant visitors, both here on retreat and in our lives, so that we don't get drawn into that natural tendency to either get overwhelmed or to deny them or to um, get caught in believing them. All these ways that we usually respond that cause further suffering. We can get so busy running away from them (coughs) that we miss the beauty in our lives. And in fact, all addictions stem from that place where we meet our edge and we just can't, can't go that next step. We can't stand it. We feel it's not bearable. And so we turn towards using some substance or overworking or whatever our particular addiction is. Something that helps us avoid the reality that we don't want to tolerate. Lily Tomlin made a study of reality. And she says, I found it just too needful. And with all the things I have to do, I had to give something up. But we're encouraging you, unfortunately, (laughs) to stay with reality. So, how do we do that? And Shantideva again says, but if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand." So we begin with mindfulness, just as you've been doing, and we combine it with compassion and with wisdom, and we see that if we can open our hearts and look at how we're stuck, look at the paces we're blocked, look at the ways we try to escape, with gentleness and with the clarity of mindfulness we find that what seemed terrifying, horrible, boring, dull, difficult, impossible, becomes actually a source of wisdom and understanding. It becomes a way of actually reconnecting to our true nature. And so mindfulness has these three qualities, and the first of them is gentleness, rather than judging or being critical of what's here. And the second is precision. Mindfulness is precise. It shows us exactly what's here. It's unafraid to be honest. It shows all of what's here, every part of us. And it's also open, and that open quality of mindfulness allows things to arise and to pass through. It doesn't hold on to, or add to, or reject. And so The knowing of mindfulness doesn't confuse the image with the mirror. It knows that the reflections are not the mirror. So there isn't then that adding or that getting caught and holding on to. There's no grasping or rejecting. So in that way, we're not giving up on ourselves. We're not giving up on ourselves, but we're turning towards ourselves with this kind attention to see what's here. And that takes courage, and it also takes love. Because there's a way that we then see that the dark thoughts, the difficult thoughts, are not the enemy. It's not about trying to get rid of them, but about including them. And when we shine the light of mindfulness in this way, the perspective shifts. Because what we're doing is we're shifting our attention from trying to get rid of to the power of recognition. And when we do that, the energy is freed. And it's this freeing of the energy that leads to transformation. Because then we see that all these difficulties are just energy states. And when we suppress them, we're actually suppressing life energy, life force. And that's what leads us to feel numb or despairing, when we suppress that. Because then we're, we're closing ourselves not just to the sorrow and difficulty, but also to the joy, to that fully being and life. So then the first thing we do, as you were doing in the instruction this morning, is we recognize what's happening, what's here. And we make a soft note of it. Fear, fear, or anger, or disgust or whatever it is. We really see what it is that's present. And then we notice how we're relating to it. How am I relating to it? Am I accepting it or not? And sometimes we can think acceptance means having to like something or put up with something. But acceptance, knowing how we're treating it simply means as It's a way of seeing, am I in resistance against what's here, or am I in a place of allowing? And sometimes what's here is so awful that we're not willing or able to accept it. And then what needs acceptance is the unbearableness of it, is the awfulness of it, is how difficult it is. That's what's asking for acceptance. Not that we should force ourselves to be other than how we are. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay. (laughs) So it's a full and deep acknowledgement of sometimes things are not bearable or don't feel workable. And so we're looking at that. How am I holding this? How am I relating to it? And as best we can, allowing that, allowing that this is how it is. And then once we're aware of that, we begin to be able to bring some curiosity or some interest to it. Well, what exactly is it like? Where is it in my body? Oh, my body's contracted and tight. Where is it contracted and tight? Maybe it's your chest, your belly. Maybe there's a heat or a warmth or a color to it. Quality, what's the quality like? What's the intensity like? So we're really exploring it. And then we notice the feeling tone. Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Sometimes the disturbing emotion can be something that's really pleasant that we're really wanting and holding on to. So we notice that and we see what it's like, how it's expressing, what thoughts are coming in and accompanying it. And then we begin to notice. Am I identified with it? Have I, have I become this mind state, whatever it is that's here? And this is a really important place because when it becomes mine, there's a way it sticks to us. So if what's here is depression or despair and you say, I'm depressed, there's a way it becomes solidified in who you are rather than it being the state of depression, which is a disgusting visitor, but has the potential to move through. When we make it mine, we have a sense of it being permanent or terminal. But no emotion, however disgusting, is terminal. And when it's not mine, there's that possibility of it moving through. I like to think of it as um, Teflon mind and Velcro mind. When I'm able to have Teflon mind, and I'm not taking it personally or identifying, there's a possibility of it sliding through. When I have Velcro mind, there it is, stuck. And I may have to be with it as long as I'm identified with it. But that moment that you see, oh, I identified with it, is a possibility of it loosening and transforming. And that other important piece is the place where we notice the feeling tone, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that's a really useful part because it's another place where we can move into freedom. When, when there's any contact with a sense door, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, or when there's any, sorry, when there's any contact with a sense door, we experience it as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whether it's the sunset, which was beautiful, or whether it's the warmth in the room is unpleasant, or the noises of that um, speaker when none of us are talking that have been bothering you. All those things. But what happens is when it's pleasant, there's a movement towards it. And then there's a liking pleasant, I like mine wanting and clinging to, or unpleasant, hating, aversion pushing away. And these are places we can get caught. And it's a basic animal response to move towards pleasant. It's a survival mechanism. It's a hindbrain function. It's not something we're going to get rid of, this response to pleasant and unpleasant. Um, You know, if a big furry coyote sees something small and furry, it's ah, edible.
1: <laughs>
0: if it sees something its same size and furry, it may say, ah, mateable. No.
1: <laughs>
0: and if a, if a desert spider, I'm enjoying this, sorry. If a desert,
1: <laughs>
0: if a desert spider sees another spider, unfortunately it may be most, both eatable and mateable. <laughs> But the survival of the species makes sure that its desire for for mating (laughs) comes before its fear of being eaten. (laughs) But (laughs) we we have a a cortex (laughs) and so we're (laughs) We're supposed to be able to develop discriminating wisdom. (laughs) Which means that we have the option of not picking it up when it's pleasant and not pushing it away when it's unpleasant. But seeing if we can be with those difficult sensations or see if we can refrain from picking something up that we know isn't going to be useful to us. And it's, it's a wonderful part of our practice, this ability to refrain, and also to let go. And you can just explore this as you sit, this movement towards and movement away. Sometimes we may have been, found ourselves rehearsing a story over and over some particular issue in our lives, keeps coming up again. And we relive the conversation with someone. And we rehearse what we're going to say when we next see them. Any of you experience this? (laughs) And so you can begin to see the story arising. You can begin to see it emerging as your concentration deepens. And so you can refrain from picking it up again. You can refrain, because I know where that goes. And there's that possibility of refraining. Sometimes, you've already picked it up before you notice, and you realize this is very unpleasant, I don't like it. And you're being, it's as though you're being pulled along by a leash. Then there's the possibility of letting go of the leash. This is not a useful direction to go in. And so there's those places of choice that come from being able to notice when things are pleasant and unpleasant a possibility of freedom from being pulled and from being caught. The other thing we notice, when something's very repetitive and we just seem to be caught in it, and we can't seem to let go, um, it may be a very intense and painful story, or a loss, or a grief, or whatever it is. As we bring the curiosity to it, we start to see that it's like waves, that the waves have a beginning and they have an end. Sometimes they're more intense, sometimes they're less intense, that they're constantly changing, that they have a cycle to them. They're never exactly the same. We see that they come and go, just like the breath. And then there may be silence for a while, and then here comes another one, and it's, oh, big surprise, here it comes again. And then it becomes okay. It's not, here it is again, oh no, I should have dealt with it by now. (laughs) How come it's not finished? It's just, oh, here it is again. This is really hard. Or this is unpleasant. And so the mindfulness then becomes this anchor, this place of stability that helps us in be with these difficult waves as they come and go. And it provides that place of peace within the turmoil. Sometimes when things are are really in a lot of turmoil, when there's a very intense grief or sadness or rage or difficulty, it can really help to use the breath. And there are some um, phrases from Thich Nhat Hanh's interpretation of the um, Sutta on mindfulness of breathing. And it's breathing in, I calm the body, breathing out, I calm the body. Breathing in, I calm the mind. Breathing out, I calm the mind. You can do that for a few times in a place of difficulty. Just that breathing in, calming the mind. Breathing out, calming the mind. Or you can just simply say with something like anger or fear or difficulty, Breathing in, I take care of the mind. Breathing in, I take care of this fear. Breathing out, I take care of this fear. Whatever the difficult emotion is, so that you're naming it and just using the breath and the waves of the breath to take care of it in that way, or to bring in some calmness. The breath is very valuable for bringing some stability with which to be with all these changes and fluctuations, with the waves. And it's also useful to intentionally direct compassion to ourselves when we're in a really difficult place. Very simply to say, I care about this pain. I care about this difficulty. So if you want, just for a moment, if it feels right to you, you could just close your eyes and bring into your awareness or into your mind some difficulty that you've been struggling with today. You don't have to choose the biggest one. It could be some small difficulty that you've been struggling with today. And just recognize it. What is it? What's here? Notice how you're relating to it. You're accepting or resisting, just to see. And then you might very softly say, I care about this. I care about this pain or this difficulty. As though you were holding it with tenderness. So we're not trying to rid ourselves of this feeling but just to take care of ourselves while it's here. To take care of ourselves until it leaves. And we don't know when that will be, or what will happen next. There's no agenda. It's just being here with ourselves, while it's here. And when we do that, when we hold something with tenderness rather than contraction, There's a possibility of loosening and of transformation, of freeing the energy, and so the difficult state starts to transform and to drop away. And we get to see that things do change, and that no emotion ever is final. And what we see is that what you may be seeing right now is that one emotion is replaced by another. There might be Sadness, and then there might be peacefulness, and boredom, and all these states, just as you were experiencing this morning in the meditation. It's just like weather, there's this constant change, or like waves on a lake arising and dissolving. And the analogy of the waves on the lake, I really like. John Kabat-Zinn has a guided meditation that helps people connect with the vast stillness of the depth of the lake that has almost no waves, even when the surface is just frothing and turbulent. It gives us us that ability to connect with the vastness or the stillness with that larger sense, even when the surface is choppy. So we see when we're able to allow it to move, that it gets a chance to play itself out, however it is. It might play itself out for this moment and then something else might occur. There was um, a retreat I was teaching at Cloud Mountain in uh, southern Washington um, a couple of years ago. And there was a woman who came to the retreat um, who had a very traumatic background of abuse, physical abuse. And she was very afraid of men and so she'd chosen to come to a women's retreat. And the first person that she met was the man who was doing registration. (laughs) And of course she was very afraid and she wanted to leave. But he was wonderful and very supportive and helped her feel safe enough to stay. And so she i never done any practice before, but she learned to work with her emotions in just this way. In being with the fear, softly noting, fear, fear, where was it? Heart pounding, heart pounding, holding it with kindness. And there was a phrase that I shared with her um, that I learned from Marina Weissman, who just says, I'm here for you, honey, to herself when she's in difficulty. So she learned this phrase, I'm here for you, honey. And then towards the end of the retreat, she happened to go into the kitchen and there was um, a man who was cooking that day, there was a man in the kitchen. And she said she immediately froze and felt the panic coming. She felt her heart pounding and going into panic and that she would have to leave the retreat. And then she remembered to, to recognize, oh, fear. And then she said, I'm here for you, honey. And she was there for herself and then to remember, well, what's actually happening right now? And she looked at him and she saw, oh, he's cutting the vegetables. And he's doing it so beautifully. He's doing it for my lunch. <laughs> and she was filled with love for this man who was cutting her vegetables. And she was just mo- She was so moved. She was shining by the time she came back to the hall. And at the end of the retreat, I saw her having lunch with him. And. Um, you know, just
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and uh, just, it just changed her whole uh, way of being able to relate. <laughs> so difficult feelings have to be felt. There isn't any way around them, whether it's wanting or fear or anger or grief or disgust. It's the fully allowing of them, rather than pushing them away, that helps us work with them. And there's a difference between embracing a difficult feeling and getting overwhelmed and drowning in it. And it's an important (coughs) distinction, because we're not wanting to um, re-traumatize ourselves. John Kabat-Zinn says, it's how we handle what's going on at the crest of the wave that influences the resolution. Because often when we reach our limit, we can freeze. We can, like sometimes a rabbit does when it's run and run and run and it can't run anymore, it freezes. But what we most need to do is to keep staying present, to just keep being present the next little step and the next little step. Many years ago, I took some lessons in whitewater kayaking, which was terrifying for me. <laughs> and um, sea kayaking, I can handle. But whitewater kayaking, you have to be able to flip over and, and come up the other way. And you cannot stop paddling. The rougher the water that is, the more you have to keep paddling. And if you freeze, that's it. <laughs> You've had it. <laughs> And so that image has really helped me. It's that keeping on moving, even if it's a tiny step, keeping on staying present with the unfolding of what's happening. Around that same time, I went to um, a meditation retreat. This must have been maybe 20 years ago. And I was very afraid. I had a lot of fear coming up in my practice. And so much fear that I was up all night, the first night of the retreat, and I finally went into the hall about three in the morning because I was so so afraid. And I said to myself, okay, I'll take you home in the morning if you let me sleep. (laughs) And um, the next morning I told the person who was teaching how afraid I was. And um, he said, I can really see how much fear there is. Maybe it's too much for you to work with. Maybe it would be right for you to go home. And the fact that he got it made me able to stay. The fact that he really saw and reflected how much fear there was enabled me to stay. And so I stayed with the fear. And what happened was I went out on walking meditation and I started to run. And I just kept saying to myself, I'm running away. I'm running away. I'm running away. And it was that staying with the fear and acknowledging that I was running away from it that made it workable. So that After a little while, there was no fear, and I realized, oh, I didn't die. (laughs) It wasn't terminal. So it's that being able to stay with it, even when it's really difficult, that enables us to build the trust, to see that it's just a difficult energy. But it's also important to go really slowly with it, not to re-traumatize ourselves. It's not an archaeological dig. We don't have to go to the deepest place of our fear or our grief. We're just dealing with what's in the moment. We're not going fishing. We're just seeing what's here. Can I be with this moment? So that we allow that things are revealed in their own time. And that allows integration. We respect our own unfolding and the time that it takes. Because with any emotion, A small enough dose is workable. We can make enough space. And I talked to some of you about this sense of having a large enough container. And the Buddha had an analogy of putting salt in a little cup of water. It tastes very salty. And if you put some salt in the big, large, enormous river Ganges, it doesn't taste salty. It dilutes the intensity of the emotion. And so if you, if you allow, as I think Jack was talking about the other night, how big, is the te- how big is this grief? How large are the fears? You allow more space so that it dilutes the intensity of the emotion. It doesn't have to end at our skin. We can just have a sense that our body boundary is more porous. That we can allow that sense of space, rather the contraction of the small sense of self. Whenever we make something mine, I'll just say this again, my fear, my anger, my grief, then there's that smallness and an increased intensity. When we can allow it as just a mind state, there's space for it to pass through. And we're able then to see more clearly and to see that as we're being with something, over time in our practice, the charge begins to wear itself out. And we can still find that we get caught in these things. We still can run away and indulge and repress. It's not that it changes overnight just because we've had one moment of being free from it on retreat. It's a practice. No, for example, you might find yourself saying, I'm not going to do this ever again, okay? I'm not going to make this, do this particular pattern ever again. I'm free from it. I have had the insight. Now it's over. <laughs> Those of you who have been on many retreats know this one. And then all of a sudden, there you are, wanting, wanting, oh no, starting to do it again, starting to do it again, oh no, doing it again, <laughs> doing it again. <laughs> And for a while in our practice, we see that whole process, and then at some point, this starts to be a choice, and the charge starts to lessen a little bit, and we're less caught. But it's having that kind of patience and humour that sees that happening and that allows that. I have a, a friend who, um, is, a proverbial worrier. Whatever there is in life to worry about, she will worry about it. And she was on one retreat when she was um, having whatever arose she worried about. And she was getting really frustrated with herself for doing it. And then at some point as her concentration deepened, she had this image of a little toy that she'd had as a child. And it was a little doll of a little old woman with a little frilly hat and an apron. And you wound it up and this little old woman went, oh my. Oh my! Oh my! (laughs) And so... (laughs) 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 So whenever she would find herself starting to worry or get caught in some obsession about something, she would go, Oh my! Oh my! (laughs) Oh my! You could try it. (laughs) But it was a way of taking herself less seriously. <laughs> no, of, of acknowledging that we get caught in these things, we get caught in our stories, and it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> and um, there's another, it reminded me of another story of um, a woman who's you know, cooking in the kitchen, and her son comes in and he says, Mom, Mom, what would you do if you were surrounded by a big circle of hungry tigers? And she says, Oh, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be terrified. What would you do? And he just looks at her and he says, I'd stop pretending.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so... <laughs>
0: so it's just that acknowledging that we create these stories, and we frighten ourselves, this fear of what might happen. So another of the very difficult emotions that we encounter is anger. And anger can also be caught up with resentment and jealousy and resentment and frustration, all these places where we get caught that are so painful and difficult when we're angry at the injustice in the world, or we're angry at small things in our lives, at betrayals, at all sorts of things. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to embrace anger. And it's a, actually a useful thing. It signals that something's wrong. Something's wrong here. Someone or something is hurting. And so it helps us to pay attention. Thich han. Um, has this lovely analogy of when someone puts your house on fire, you don't rush out looking for them. You put out the fire first. And so we we learn to take care of that. This is from Robert Thurman. He said, years ago, some academics and I did a study of religious violence. We found that the people who are the most violent are those who are incapable Of embracing their own potential for evil. By projecting their shadow, their evil, onto the other, they justify their violence. They think they're emphasizing their purity or restoring their purity by destroying someone else. So it's vital then to embrace the shadow, to acknowledge the shadow in ourselves, and often we can be blind to that. We can, and I'm sure you all know of people, or maybe you've done it yourself, of being unable to see that the ways that you project anger out. I grew up in a family where there was a lot of anger. I had a father who was frequently very angry. And, um, one day my brother came home from college and they got into a fight and my brother at this point gave back the anger equally. And my father turned to him and he said, Jeremy, I don't know where you get that terrible temper from. <laughs> and there was a sort of silence. <laughs> and my brother turned and looked at him and he said, why, mother, of course. <laughs> 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 <Which> <laughs> but my father was totally unable to see it. You know, Just as those in that thing about Robert Thurman, people are unable to see the projection. So we really need to look at it and to be able to embrace these difficult places in ourselves. Ajahn Sumedho says, be glad when unpleasant states come up in your meditation practice. By having loving kindness for the wretched creatures that we lock away inside ourselves, we're opening the door of the prison. We're letting them go. We're releasing them out of compassion rather than the desire to be rid of them. So we're treating them with (coughs) compassion. We're seeing them as just mind states, mind states of confusion and hurt and pain and anger as not who we are. When we see them as who we are, we identify them, and and then we become a bad person for having such bad mind states. And then that's even more suffering. But if we see them as just difficult mind states, then we don't have to take it on. And then it's possible to be free of them, and to not keep perpetuating that pattern. About a year and a half ago, um, I was I went to Tibet with a medical health team, um, and we were working in our orphanages and um, in orphan schools, and in monasteries in different places as to in Tibet. We were just like a, a traveling a little traveling clinic, and. Um, I'm pausing because I still have a lot of um, feeling about this. And when I pay attention to my body, I'm just aware of a lot of sadness and grief still. And we saw a lot of things that were very inspiring, but also very, very painful. We had gone there um, to help, to be of service, and the people there were coming, sometimes, for many days of travel across, um, across the high plains, the high plateau. Some of them were nomads. and One day, um, this young woman and her, her um, husband came, and they traveled for two days, and they brought with them a little baby um, who was only five days old. And this little baby had never had a bowel movement because it didn't have an anus. It was born without an anus. And someone where the baby had been born had tried to make an opening. Um, but of course, you know they didn't have any knowledge of, of what to do. And so they came expecting the great Western doctors to fix this. And the way, way our clinic worked was we would, we would be sitting there and someone would come to us and immediately about 40 of the Tibetan community were crowned around us. So you were completely surrounded by people. And there I was holding this little baby that there was nothing I could do for. And I was just um, heartbroken to see these people looking at me with hope and trust and expectation. And to be able to know that there wasn't anything I could do was very painful. And there were so many things like that. That was just one example of many, of young people who had tuberculosis that we didn't have the drugs for, of all sorts of illnesses and diseases that there was just no answer for. And I saw all the causes of that too in the political system and, and so forth. When I came back, um, I was filled with a lot of anger and despair and frustration. And um, I went through a period of loss of faith in my practice. You know, I I went on a retreat that was being given by a very dear friend who I've known for 30 years. And I went up to him and I said, What's the point? I've had all these experiences of the truth and it's not making any difference in the world. You know, I, I had kind of come to this place of this childlike. Um, You know, this is supposed to have fixed things. There's supposed to be less suffering and there's not. (laughs) You know, where are all the bodhisattvas? (laughs) What's going on? And, um, you know, why doesn't it stop? I was really caught in this place of grieving. Why don't people stop killing each other? You know, just this, um, and I'm sure you can all relate to this. And so, he just encouraged me to just keep being with it, and just keep keep staying with it, and not um, just as it was, just as I've been encouraging you to do, to embrace it, to be with it. And so, I got to a place where there weren't just tears, but my whole body was crying, and I was just saying, my heart is breaking, my heart is breaking. And then all of a sudden, oh, my heart is broken. Oh, my heart is broken open. And then it was as though all the grief of the universe was passing through. And then all the love of the universe. And I just felt held in all this love and compassion. Universal pain and grief that we all get touched by. That's also held in A heart as wide as the world." Sharon Salzberg's phrase. Just that being held in compassion and love that enables it be possible to be with it. And I saw that I didn't have to contain it all. It wasn't containable. And we can find ourselves doing that, trying to contain what isn't containable. Some of you here are experiencing grief, that isn't containable, and just to know that this is how it is, it's not containable. And from that place, um, I went outside on walking meditation, and I'm telling this story because um, it's a way for me of just sharing you how this works. That it's not just about words or about theory, it's about direct experience of this for ourselves. And um, I got on a swing and you know you could stand on this swing and it was pouring with rain and I was swinging in the rain and um, I was feeling like a lot of energy and, and clear and somebody came past me you know, right next to the swing, and there was one next to me. And all of a sudden, it was, this is my swing. <laughs> you know? And I was filled with universal greed. <laughs> and wanting, you know. And it was really funny. It was this huge greed and possessiveness of my swing. You know, and, and they obviously felt this vibe, because they left. <laughs> <But> <laughs> But then in allowing the huge greed, then huge anger came at all the injustice. There was huge anger, this universal anger at all the injustice in the world, at all the, whatever I could possibly find to be angry at just poured through. It was like filling my whole body. And I really, really saw that all the states were just energy. There was the energy of anger the energy of greed, the energy of hatred, the energy of joy, the energy of power, all just energy states arising and passing. And it just felt like the life force, that life force moving through. And the, what, was, what was so clear to me was that it was not personal. And in it not being personal, I was not caught in it, not identified with it. It could pour through. And there was a real sense of freedom in that, a clarity and a brightness. Which totally renewed my faith. (laughs) And so also in knowing that those moments of losing faith are also not who we are. Those moments of deep doubt and concern are not who we are. And when we can allow those fully and see them for what they are, we also don't so deeply believe in them and get caught in them. We don't become all our mind states. One of the most difficult mind states that we can get caught in is self-hatred. And often that comes from a very young place. Something bad or difficult or unpleasant happens to a very young child, and they identify that. They identify with that. Instead of, it, it, instead of just something bad is happening, it becomes, I'm bad. And that happens so quickly as a young child, and it can go in so deeply, this sense of, if something wrong is going on out around me, I'm bad. Particularly this is true for children who've been abused. Whether it's verbally or physically or sexually this sense of something is wrong. It must be me that's wrong. And it's very helpful to begin to see this and to heal it. So gradually then we can begin to, with kindness and with gentleness, transform the self-hatred into self-love. Here's a teaching, um, a retreat in BC um, this fall. And there was a woman who had come to the retreat who'd never done any practice before. And after one day of sitting, she just couldn't bear it, and she was going to leave the retreat. And she came to me and she said, I can't do this. This is impossible. All I can see is all the mistakes I've made in my life. My failure in relationships. My failure in finding the job that I want. And I just can't do this. I can't stand it. And so I said to her, well, maybe you don't need to come into the hall. And I taught her the loving kindness practice that you've been doing each day. I said, just go for a walk on the beach and just say to yourself, safe. May I be safe from inner and outer harm, all the inner harm. May I be safe. And the different phrases of loving-kindness practice. And so she did that. And I didn't actually see her for a couple of days because I was seeing other people. And then at some point I noticed that she was in the hall. And I noticed her crying at different times. And then at the end of the retreat when we shared in a circle, she said what had happened was she'd come into the hall and she'd put her attention on her breath, and she'd been saying to herself, breathing in, and then breathing out. And then all of a sudden, she noticed spontaneously that she was saying, breathing in, love. Breathing out, love. And she said, and the love was for me. And she had never felt that before. And so it's just that ability to be soft and to be gentle with ourselves is gradually wearing a groove. It's sowing seeds of the possibility of caring about ourselves. No matter what is happening around us, no matter what state we find ourselves in, can we give it caring? Can we give it acceptance? Because there's a fine line between seeing ourselves clearly And letting that soften and humble us, and turning it into self-hatred and low self-esteem, that edge. We want to see clearly how we are, because that way if we can see our shadow, we're not going to project it outwards. But we don't want to see it clearly and then punish ourselves with it. We're brought up in our society, if we make a mistake, we should be punished for it. You know, that's our, our culture. If you do something wrong, you're punished for it. But all that punishing does, all that punishment does, is lead to being very good at punishing. So we learn to be very good at punishing ourselves, which is not healing. And, it, and what it does then is it makes us hide even further from ourselves what's difficult or painful. We even less want to see our shadow, because we're afraid of our own judgment. But if we can begin to give kindness to it, as Ajahn Sumedho says, it begins to be able to leave the prison. And just to, there's more freedom and gentleness. And as as I said on the very opening night, the Buddha taught that guilt is not necessary and it's not particularly productive. Remorse is, because remorse is acknowledging, oh, I did something that wasn't helpful or skillful, and I don't want to do that ever again. But it doesn't say I'm bad, and guilt infers there's something wrong inherently. John Kabat-Zinn has a little different Um, way of saying the word mistake. He just says it's simply a mistake. No, a mistake. A way we've seen something out of confusion or ignorance or um, fear or pain. And then there's no blame. There might be regret, but there isn't the blame. And so in our forgiveness practice here, which is not easy for us, in our forgiveness practice here, we're beginning to open our hearts to ourselves. We're beginning to allow a possibility of forgiving ourselves, of forgiving each other. And it's just a process. There's no right way to feel as we do it. We're just very very slowly beginning to allow ourselves into our own hearts, to not be so separate. I have a friend um, who has a lovely way of um, looking at mistakes and she was working, she's um, an art therapist and she works with young children who have, his, uh, have histories of abuse or trauma and come from families where there's been a lot, of, a lot of pain and sometimes she noticed as they were doing their artwork that if they made a mistake or they did something wrong they would try and erase it or cover it up or be ashamed of it. And so she encouraged them, she said, she noticed this contraction, she said, okay, whenever you make a mistake from the now on, I want you to go, hooray, I made a mistake. <laughs> and so the kids loved it, you know, and the, all the time she would hear this, hooray, I made a mistake.
1: <laughs>
0: and you notice how freeing that is. And so then one day she was writing something on the, on the board for them, and she made a mistake. And the kids all went, hooray, she made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and she said it was really profound for her because she realized she'd just been you know, doing it with them. She hadn't really taken it in for herself. And she realized that so much of her life she'd been afraid to talk in public, she'd been afraid to do a presentation or whatever it was because of her fear of making a mistake. And she suddenly found that in doing that, it was ah. I don't have to carry it. And that's so much of what it is. We don't have to carry it with us. I can find this. This is Arjun Ananda. He says, We put a lot of energy into holding on to our mistakes, our woes, <coughs> concerns, and dreadful memories, and carrying them around like a rotting corpse wrapped around our necks. It's as if you walked into a room and people said, would you mind, please?
1: It stinks.
0: And you say, but this is mine. It's part of my essential nature. And so the encouragement is to let it go. So just acknowledge it's not part, it's not part of our essential nature. And so, some of what we're doing here is like a purification process. It's allowing all this stuff to leave. It's being washed through. And some of the tears in their hall are this washing it through, this cleansing. And when you, do, when, you, when you do this purification or this washing, sometimes the water as it comes out is dirty. And that's a normal part of the process. So we're not doing it wrong if these difficulties are coming up. This is just how it is. It's releasing and it's freeing. So I'd like to end with this um, poem by Roshani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable, There's a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There's a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we're sanctioned into being. There's a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So thank you for your attention.